Have you been seeing all the advancements that are happening in the electric vehicle space and wondering when is this going to happen for fleets, those heavy duty and medium duty trucks out on the road? When are they going to start hitting this transition to become electrified? That is what we are going to talk about during this interview today with my amazing guest, B.S. Filler, Transportation Program Director and Fellow at Resources for the Future. We talk all about what it is going to take to make this transition happen and all of what's going on. So make sure you don't miss a single second of this amazing interview. You're here for another dose of climate positivity on the Green Business Impact Podcast. Here we highlight the amazing work of green businesses from around the world that are fighting against climate change. If you are ready to be inspired to take action, ready to hear some amazing examples of how we are working to fight the climate crisis, then stay tuned because this week's episode will be the perfect hit of climate positivity. Do you mind telling us about Resources to the Future and what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So Resources for the Future is an environmental economics think tank. We're located in D.C. It's an organization made up mostly of researchers. It's been around for 70 years. We, in fact, we just celebrated our 70th last summer. Happy birthday. <laughs> and the overall mission of the organization is really to conduct and engage in policy to help combat and mitigate the effects of climate change. So to that end, we're organized in topical areas. I lead the transportation program and within the transportation program, we're working on issues of vehicle decarbonization and have a big focus on vehicle electrification. Yeah, because the big we're going through is trying to electrify vehicles and make sure that we are moving more towards EVs as things continue to go with that trend. What is a project that you're currently working on right now? I'm working on a multitude of different projects <laughs> dealing with vehicle electrification, really thinking about all the different pieces of it within the light duty vehicle space, but also the medium heavy duty vehicle space. And one that I'm really excited about has to do with medium and heavy duty electric fleets, really asking the question of how can we leverage electricity tariffs to be able to meet two simultaneous goals. So one of the goals is we want people to adopt these trucks and buses, right? The challenge is that the vehicles themselves are a lot more expensive than their diesel alternatives. And so in order for the total cost of ownership of that adoption to be favorable, the cost of charging the vehicle needs to be mitigated, right? You can't have electricity prices be high or electricity bills be so high that it makes it unattractive to adopt. So this is one of the aspects where we want to try to be able to keep electric bills down. The other challenge is that these vehicles have really large batteries. And if they're charged in a way that doesn't take into account some of the external costs that charging places on the system, then it can lead to a lot of really big costs within the sector. So what we're looking to do is create tariffs or figure out what are the tariffs that we can implement that both help keep those electric bills down, but at the same time, incentivize to manage their charging in a way that is beneficial to society. So that's this big project that we're working on. It's this collaboration amongst many different organizations and it's interdisciplinary too, which is really fun. So we've got engineers from University of Illinois working with us. 
We've got uh, transportation modelers from North Carolina State. And we're working also with NGOs like CalSTAR Environmental Defense Fund to be able to really think through all of these really tricky issues and come up with some research that can help inform the decision-making process around tariff setting. Definitely, because a big part of making that transition to an electric fleet is also being able to charge that fleet. And it's not just, oh, when you take a car home from the dealership and you got your own personal EV, you plug it in and it, it draws some power. But when you are trying to charge five, six, 10, 20 vehicles, and these are heavy duty, medium duty trucks, they can draw quite a bit of energy. So you have to be able to time them out correctly. You also have to sometimes get a manufacturing of the whole grid system there Absolutely. too, right? Yeah, the impacts on the grid can be just massive. So in our research, for example, we're basically creating these loads for these electric trucks simulating them. And what we found was that, for example, heavy duty delivery, the big sort of semi trucks that you can imagine those that are doing regional haul, a fleet of a hundred of that, which isn't a huge amount of vehicles, but a hundred of these vehicles could pull up to seven megawatts of demand. Now that might not sound like a lot, but let me put it in perspective. Okay. An average stadium pulls five megawatts. So you would basically have a depot that one day to the next, right? If they would, that fleet manager went out and bought a hundred trucks and decided to charge it the next day, it'd be like a stadium popping up overnight. There's no way there is really, I will bet you a million dollars that you're not going to find anywhere that has an excess capacity of seven megawatts on the system. This is just way too big. So what has to happen? The electric utility needs to come in and form the system, put in a new transformer. And in certain settings, they might even have to fix that substation, expand the substation because those demands are so big. So they're really costly fusion upgrades that you have to make locally just to be able to accommodate those loads. And then not even to mention the upstream things, which is the generation. How much generation, more generation do we need to be putting on the system to allow for these fleets to have this demand, right? In aggregate, you could imagine if all the vehicles come online, you might need to expand the amount of generators that are out there quite a bit, but all of that is going to depend right? and the cost of all these things is going to depend entirely upon the ability of these fleets to mitigate their demands. So let's talk for a second about the distribution system. Obviously it doesn't matter if you're demanding seven megawatts in the middle of the day or at night, you're still going to have to expand the system, but can that seven megawatt number be dropped down to five megawatts or four megawatts. The difference in the investment that you're going to have to make for a three megawatt upgrade versus a seven megawatt upgrade is pretty significant. So what we're looking to do is say, can we use those peak demands to be able to not have to span the mission system? So that's one part of it. On the generation side of things, now the timing actually does matter because there's a lot of generators that currently exist that aren't being run all the time. If they're being ramped up, they're being ramped down. Maybe they're just like not producing very much during moments of low demand, like overnight, they might just be turned off or running very minimally. So you could imagine if you now are charging your vehicle during times when that capacity is underutilized, the generation capacity is underutilized, you just ramp up generation without having to build more plants. But if you do that in the middle of the day, when all the power plants are firing at their maximum capacity. Now you're going to have to invest in more generation. 
So there's these two, there's the upstream and the downstream things that you have to think about. And the decisions on the fleet side about when to charge and how quickly to charge is going to affect the costs on both sides of the system. And not only in areas just considering like demand and peak demand in more developed areas, but also if you're trying to do a school bus fleet where, you know, that parking lot where they originally sat probably didn't even have any power going to it. Maybe just a few street lights to shine some light in there during the night, but might not have, you know, direct power lines surrounding it, or it might just be a lot out there. That's a whole other consideration too, of getting the power out there. Absolutely. And it's a real concern. There's this one example that really stuck with me. We spoke with this small fleet that was located in, in New York City. And this was a beverage delivery company that had chosen to electrify for environmental reasons. They were like environmentally conscious company. They said, we're going to order seven trucks. So they order the seven trucks and then they decide to call their electric company, Consolidated Edison. And they said, hey, we just ordered seven electric trucks. We're going to get them in three or four months. So Con Ed folks come down there and they're looking at the system. They say, well, you don't have anywhere near the capacity needed to be able to charge these vehicles. And this was in one of their depots. They said, you don't have the power. It's going to take us like a year or two to bring you the power. And so they were like scrambling. They're like, okay, let's reroute some power from this machine to the charger. And we're going to have to find public charging stations. And they were scrambling. Not only that, they had another depot out in Red Hook, Brooklyn, which is like a port community. That had no power. There, there were no electric lines going to it. So there was no oh, wow. way that they would be able to think that they'll be able to expand the system, right? To bring lines to a location that's highly expensive. We're talking millions and millions of dollars of investment on the utility side of things, which is probably just not going to happen. And so there's this challenge. Even in the prior steps to thinking about electricity tariffs, we have to be thinking about are these fleets engaging with the electric utility at an early enough stage so that they can plan together, they can figure out what kind of capacity do we have and how much do we need to expand it? What is my fleet going to look like? And they can give that information to the utility so that they can appropriately size. Maybe they tell the utility, we're going to start with a couple, we're going to start with a couple trucks, but our goal over the course of five years is to expand to 50 trucks. Give them that type of information. Because otherwise, if they say, we're just buying two trucks right now, the utility might come in, make those investments to accommodate those two trucks. Then all of a sudden, like a year later, they're like, actually, we're expanding even more, we're doing 10 trucks or 20 trucks. And now the utility has to come in and could do that when they could have just done it in one setting at one moment at the beginning and then not have to have this sort of continue back and forth. So there's this really important planning and organization with the electric utility that has to happen that many times honestly is not happening. And so it's leading to having these vehicles that are basically unutilized assets sitting in the garage that there's nothing they can do with them because they can't charge them and there's so few public charging stations for medium heavy duty vehicles like you can't pull your semi truck into the whole foods parking garage and charge it there it's not going to work like the, the it doesn't fit right so public charging stations for medium heavy duty vehicles have to be with the size of the vehicle in mind and there's almost none i think i heard of three different public charging stations that are like massive public charging stations that have like several, but you go around and you don't see them. You see the light duty ones, but you don't see the medium heavy duty vehicle ones. So it's something that it's a huge challenge. How do we actually get enough charging for these vehicles? And then once they come in, how do we make sure that they're managing their demands in a way that 
is going to keep the cost down. So it's this multifaceted approach that we have to take. We're not going to be able to just flip the switch and get everybody to be electric. It takes a lot of planning, a lot of coordination across all these different players to be able to do this in a, like an effective and efficient manner. And what do you see as those necessary steps and how long do you think this will take? for us to make those steps towards that transition to be able to have that availability of public charging stations where big heavy duty trucks can like pull through the road for diesel trucks right now, where they can just pull through, they can charge and then keep going kind of thing. Where do you see that future coming? The NEVI funds, the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program, okay? This is a program that is basically pumping billions of dollars into the investment in public charging stations. So the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program, which basically gives $5 billion in investments through the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed in 2021. What the NEVI program does is it basically creates a public-private partnership with the government and private charging station investors. So the federal government gives funds to the states and the state, the Department of Transportation or other agencies within the states work with public charging station investors to get those charging stations up and running. So they pay for a big chunk of that upfront cost. And they're also able to support the operations and maintenance of these charging stations for five years. So what does that mean that you make the chicken and egg problem? So here, there's a huge chicken and egg problem when we're talking about heavy-duty vehicles. Huge percentage of the vehicles out there, particularly long-haul trucking, okay, the heavier-duty ones, don't house at depots. Maybe they're owned by a person who has them in their garage, or they don't charge at depots, right? They travel, they're either traveling cross-country or they're a drayage, so they would expect to maybe charge at port or charge along the way. What that means is that unless there's these public charging stations, they're not going to make the switch to electric. On the other hand, if you're a charging station investor and you're doing this for medium heavy duty vehicles, recall, these are not parallel with the light duty vehicles. So I can't just put in a charging station. If trucks don't charge here, I'll still get the light duty vehicles, right? It's not gonna work. These aren't comparable. So as an investor, you say, I'm going to put in a charging station here, but there's, I don't know, 10 truck trucks driving around the state right now. Why would I make that investment? We're talking potentially $100,000 in this charging station investment when I'm going to get one guy charging a month. Like, why am I doing this? There's no profit motive. So what the NEVI funds are going to do is break that chicken and egg problem because they will make that investment, that private investment cheaper. Right. And so they'll have this incentive to go in and because they can cover operating costs. That's really important because the charging station owner is paying the electric bill. You have one guy come in, that's going to set the cost for your month. If you only have one person charging in the month, that one person is going to be setting what your electric bill is for the month. And so if you're paying a lot, but you're not getting a lot of money from that guy who came in, that one guy who came in to charge the car charges truck, there's no way you can make a profit because you have to pay for that electricity. So by covering the operations, it can reduce the risk of there's nobody charging at my station or very few people are charging at my station. It doesn't really matter because the state is basically subsidizing it. So I think that the NEVI funds over the next few years are really going to help 
to shift that decision, make it a lot easier for a huge amount of these fleets to decide to adopt. So that's where I think one big switch is going to come in. Yeah, definitely. There's that chicken and the egg of, okay, the people don't want to invest in a heavy duty truck because they don't have anywhere to charge it, but you don't want to make any charging stations because nobody's actually driving the trucks. <laughs> so it's okay. You got to have one, they have to come at the same time. And so that Nevi fund is really helping us say, okay, you can build the charging station because we're going to cover all of your costs. Now you're going to get people to say, okay, there are these public charging stations. I don't have to worry. I can go there. I can make sure I can get charged. And then you'll see more and more people adopt the EV. And that's really I mean, good. That's the hope. Right. It work, that remains Maybe. to be seen. I think it's an open question, right? And it might work a lot better in certain locations than others. And it might be a failure in some locations. Right, because maybe adoption's never gonna get high enough in certain locations for whatever reason. But as you move forward, and there's, for example, mandates or goals by the states that all new sales are electric by X date and so on. So they're really ramping up the goals of how many trucks are gonna be made and how many are gonna be sold. And so when you get to the point where you can only buy a new electric truck, now all of a sudden you have to think a lot more expansively and those places where it would have been less likely to be adopted now will start adopting. And so basically things in the short run are gonna be a lot different than things in the long run mainly due to the fact that the people who are adopting these vehicles, the fleets are adopting these vehicles in the early years versus the later years are going to be a lot different. Yeah, definitely. It's the same way as when they, we were first transitioning from the horse and buggy to gas-powered cars and trucks. They were saying like, oh my gosh, nobody's ever going to do this. We'd have to have a gas station on every corner. What happened? We have a gas station on every corner. So it's people see this transition as like, oh, it's far off. It's never going to happen. But we've been through these kind of transitions before. And you start hitting that demand level, you start getting these funds in from the government, all these things coming together is going to make this transition a possibility. And do you see electric only vehicles being the forerunner in this, or do you see a hybrid options in terms of heavy duty vehicles, fleets, and maybe even low carbon emissions. Do you see a plethora of different options coming together to make this transition over to EVs? Or do you see these as being the main stakeholder in this transition? I think it's a hard question to answer because the first question, which is where's the momentum? Where are the manufacturers pointing? Where's the government pointing to? What's it incentivizing? What's it subsidizing? And a lot of that is about Right. Manufacturers are thinking about electric trucks. They're producing more and more. There's more and more manufacturers out there producing these electric options. Then the government is doing a lot of investments in that space. So the question is, will electric take off? I think yes, because there's a lot of momentum there. Is that necessarily the best option if we were to start from scratch? Unclear, because particularly, for example, for long haul vehicles, it's really hard to make trucks. The batteries technology, it's not really there. I think the maximum range I've seen on a truck is something around 300. Although, no, the Tesla Semi was supposed to go 500 miles, I believe. But so we have limited range. Some of these vehicles are driving like a miles a day. Now, public charging stations, on-route charging can help alleviate this issue. But without that, one option remains with hydrogen because hydrogen is it's easier to transport. You don't have a lot of these like grid impacts of charging, but it faces its own challenges, right? There's safety issues around hydrogen. It's much more volatile. 
where does the hydrogen come from? It's just made from natural gas. And so is it clean? Not necessarily. So how do you make clean hydrogen? Okay, you can make clean hydrogen with renewable. Then are you removing the amount of renewables available for actually electricity generation? So there's this trade-off there. And I think in the end, one of the biggest challenges that I see is really getting hydrogen up and having it be a parallel option in full force is the amount of infrastructure investment that we would have to make on the hydrogen side of things. Because you have, you're making these billions of dollars of investments in electric charging. Now we're going to make billions of dollars of investments in hydrogen charging stations too. It gets really costly. Now there are these hydrogen hubs that are being that are being pushed forward by the federal government. So there might be a role for strategically placed hydrogen development and for certain use cases. Maybe it's not a full-fledged infrastructure investment. Maybe it's targeted investments here and there. That could potentially be a good alternative to electric. But it's hard to predict where it's going to go because our fleet's going to make those investments in electric vehicles or not, given the amount of challenges they face to do it. We are in the process of writing a paper that is asking, what are the challenges to medium heavy duty vehicle electrification? What are some policy solutions to deal with that? And then what are the open research questions within this framework of understanding these challenges and understanding the effect of policies on increased adoption, making sure that adoption is done in an effective, efficient, and equitable manner. So we've got this paper and it's just challenge upon challenge from the economics of adoption to after the vehicle has been adopting to making sure the equity issues are being dealt with. The paper is like very long. <laughs> we got like a 40 some odd page paper just detailing all these things out. And there's so much that we don't know. There's so much for us to do the research and continue to, to learn as it begins to ramp up that it's not necessarily a done deal that this is going to happen and that fleets are going to make this switch. So my question is, when these states decide that, oh, as manufacturers, you can't make any more diesel trucks, are the fleets going to do that? Are they going to purchase electric trucks or are they going to travel to Mexico and purchase those diesel trucks? Are they going to travel to Canada? Are they going to travel out of state to purchase the diesel trucks because they cannot overcome those challenges, right? It's an open question of what are we going to do to alleviate some of these concerns? and make it really attractive for fleets to electrify. And I want to mention, like, electrification is a really great solution. This is something we haven't really talked about. Like, why do we want to electrify these trucks? We want to because they are extremely polluting. They contribute to a huge percentage of transportation pollution, even though they're really just a small share of overall vehicles on the road. They this outsized effect on pollution. And not just that, a lot of the pollution of these trucks and buses falls on disadvantaged communities, on low-income communities. Why? Because that's where the warehouses are, that's where the depots are, that's where the freeways are, right? The major roadways, these are where these trucks are going. And they're affecting the health and well-being of these communities. So we need to lower those pollutants, not to mention climate change, because obviously that's also a huge thing that we need to mitigate. But even just thinking in the short run, that those health effects, of the level of asthma and respiratory diseases, broadly cardiovascular diseases and so on, that are caused by these diesel emissions is huge. So electrification is a really promising way, removes a lot of those pollutants from the road. Not all of them for two reasons. One, when are these vehicles being charged and where? So the cleanliness of the grid is going to determine the emissions. Now, we are moving to a more clean grid. There's a lot of investments in renewables to generate clean electricity. So that's happening. 
So we expect that to improve. But the other reason why you're never going to remove the emissions completely, it's because of the rubber hitting the road. In fact, when the tires hit the road, it creates particulate matter. And so you're never going to get rid of all of the pollutants associated with trucks and buses, but you can eliminate a huge quantity of them just by going to electric if the grid is clean. Yeah, definitely. And there's also cultural changes that happen with it too, because with trucks and buses, I, know I was talking to another person on the podcast before, and they were saying one of the buses got electrified and the kid, when they came home, he told the bus driver, he was like, hey, can you honk the horn? Because my mom yesterday didn't hear the bus come. And because he's so used to the bus when they come up, you know, it's loud, you can hear it from very far away. And so the mom was able to come out and meet them at the end of the driveway and now she had no idea and he just walked at the door had to ring the bell it's like we have these like cultural changes that will happen as well with changes in the the heavy duty trucks so it's a very interesting way forward for sure yeah i mean there's so many benefits right and noise pollution some more noise pollution is a huge one but there's also other things right? i've heard for example electric trucks are more comfortable that they're just more pleasant to drive and so we've heard from a lot of people that when truck drivers get into these vehicles, I like driving this. I like driving this much more than the other vehicle. It handles better. It's more comfortable. The smell, let's talk about the smell. Even if on one hand, those volatile organic compounds are affecting you negatively, but it's also sort of a psychological thing, right? Awful having to have those fumes come in. And even if you don't end up in the hospital with asthma, it's still really unpleasant having to stand there putting gas in the diesel in that whole experience is bad it's not pleasant the other day i was pumping gas i pulled the thing out got gas all over me i got gas all over my shoes and my jeans so i'm like this is a nightmare why can't i have an electric vehicle why can i not just plug it in and not have any of this challenge and as society we have put up with dealing with gasoline and diesel in a way that is just we're held hostage to this there's nothing we can do about it right it's like completely reliant on this awful way of driving it's really gross it smells bad it's dirty and yet we have accepted that as our status quo and so i love the fact that now that there's these electric vehicles because it allows us to break free from those chains of the gasoline, of having to be around it, having to smell it, having to touch it, get splashed on you, right? And these are just some of the benefits of going electric. I agree completely. Yeah. And just to ask you a few last questions here, so we can wrap up, what are your goals for resources to the future? What are you guys looking forward to in the next six months or so? Part of what I really want to do is have RFF be a big part of the conversation around medium heavy duty vehicle electrification, but also electrification as a whole. And so one of the things that we're doing, the visibility of RFF is to host convenings and workshops, make public documents that discuss some of these. I told you about the white paper, right? We're releasing this white paper within a few weeks, hope to be able to get the conversation going on that. Another thing that we're doing that we're learning about right now is about critical minerals. So these critical minerals are basically some of the primary material that go into making batteries, such as lithium and cobalt. This is a challenge, right? Because these are minerals that sort of historically have been extracted from problematic areas, right? The Congo and, and the other areas where human rights abuses are prevalent, especially with respect to the extraction of these minerals. 
So as we move to electrification, we're going to have to use the amount of critical minerals that we extract and process. But how is that being done? Is it done in a way that is mindful of the social impacts of the extraction is mindful of the environmental impacts of the processing. The processing can be kind of problematic for the environment also. And so we want to get into the critical mineral space and really think about how can we contribute as researchers? What can be done from an economics research perspective? A lot of what's been done in this space is engineering rather than economics. So not a lot of economics research has been done to understand how can we incentivize more critical mineral extraction in better sense? How can we reduce the social impacts of this? And how can we take steps to reduce the amount of minerals that we need through recycling, right? Or extracting the minerals from other sources like waste from power plants production. So this is one area that we're starting to go into and hope to be able to expand the conversation and lead to better policy. Yeah, definitely. I was listening to a podcast the other day about how aluminum used to be one of the rarest metals. I forget what time period this was, but I think it was only like a little over a hundred years ago or so. And it used to be one of the rarest metals. So they would put it on statues. And there is a story about a couple of kings and rulers got together and one of them brought silverware made of silver and the other one brought gold. The other one brought aluminum. And it's kind of just like really funny to us now because it's like, we have aluminum foil. Like it's, it's such a low cost metal now. And the podcast was just bringing up because they were talking about EVs and kind of the issue around lithium. They were like, we'll find a way to figure it out differently, manufacture it or find a different way to gather that resource. Because like we did with aluminum, we found a way to extract it differently. And now it's like really abundant. It's so cheap. We, everybody has a role in their home. Like we use yeah. it to for, use it on the top of cooking materials. It's so abundant versus, oh, it's a king brought it as his silverware. It's yeah, just, it's funny it's, to you think know, about. We can't overstate the importance of technological innovation and the way that these battery manufacturers are rethinking the battery technology. There's not just one way to make a battery. There's infinite ways to make a battery with different combinations. So even like, for example, in China, they've got these lithium free batteries. Now, they're a lot cheaper, you don't require lithium, they don't have the same amount of range as we would want here in the United States, but they have developed this. And so it's, what else will we come up with, right? I think that the infinite ways that this can go, and I do just want to point out that the Inflation Reduction Act is going to be, is going to be forcing some of that technological innovation. And let me tell you why. When you go to get a tax credit, so now the Inflation Reduction Act can subsidize the of EVs by up to $7,500 for light duty vehicles. And these vehicles have requirements to be able to be for the subsidy. The battery wheels need to come from fair trade countries or countries that U.S. has a fair trade agreement or North America. And then the batteries need to be manufactured in the United States. So there's those two restrictions. And this is problematic on both fronts because most of the critical minerals don't come from countries with free trade agreements. And most of the battery manufacturing and processing is not happening in the United States. So they're already scrambling to figure out how can we develop different types of technologies that reduces the amount of critical minerals that we're getting from the problematic countries, right? So we can shift to 
the smaller, there's the smaller extractors in these fair trade. But then they're also making battery manufacturing plants here and they're starting to make those investments. So we're seeing the Inflation Reduction Act pushing manufacturers and battery manufacturers to change and to innovate in a way that otherwise they would have just continued to extract in the same way and make these vehicles in the exact same way as before. So I think over the next few years, we're going to see a lot of technological innovation and there's no way to predict which way it goes, right? This is technological innovation happens like in a step function. There's a discovery and wow, all of a sudden battery costs have plummeted, right? It's not like it's just like slowly going down. It's like, there are these discrete steps, these discrete effects, and then all of a sudden we're launched forward in the process of making these batteries at the cost that we face for making them. And so it's an exciting time. I think it, we're at an inflection point right now in terms of vehicle demand and vehicle manufacturing. We've surpassed 5% of new vehicle sales to be electric. And that apparently that 5% mark is an inflection point where once demand has achieved this 5% market share, then things start to roll pretty quickly. So we should see a pretty big increase in the number of vehicles that are offered on the market, as well as the number of vehicles that are adopted. And that's just going to lead to a ton of new technological innovation, changing costs and prices. And yeah, it's an exciting time to be in. And I'm glad I'm here to see all that happen. Yeah, to experience it for sure. Yeah. So am I. And uh, what, what is one takeaway that you would like everybody who's listening to this interview to bring away from this episode? I would say that one of the things that when we think about medium heavy duty vehicle electrification, it's very hard. And there's a million challenges associated with making that transition. It's worth, it's very hard. And it's going to take way more than just throwing money at the problem where we can't just subsidize the purchase of these vehicles and expect everything to fall into place. It's going to require a coordinated level of different types of complementary policies to deal with all of the different challenges that are very diverse. And so we don't have a silver bullet, right? Just putting in carbon taxes is not going to achieve it, right? Just subsidizing the purchase is not going to achieve it. We need all of these different policies to be able to these hurdles and a lot of coordination between electric utilities, fleets, and electric vehicle manufacturers. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be a collaboration between a lot of people for sure. And if anybody would like to reach out to you, get in touch with you, learn more about what you do, how can they get in touch with you? I would definitely welcome them reaching out. My information is on the webpage at, at rff.org, also on LinkedIn. And happy to talk with anybody. And if anyone wants to reach out and talk to me about any of these topics within transportation, I would be delighted to do it. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's been really awesome having you on the show and be able to talk all about transportation and this transition to EV. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun. And if you enjoyed this episode with Resources for the Future and how we talked about this transition that's happening for the heavy-duty trucks and in terms of electrifying their fleets, then I invite you to check out this interview with Green Island EV, where we talk about how they are creating over 200 jobs in New York State to create microtransit vehicles. Think small buses and last mile delivery vehicles and they are going to help electrify the medium duty vehicle space so go check out this interview with green island ev 
thank you for listening to another episode of the Green Business Impact Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing your weekly dose of climate positivity. In a world that constantly inundates you with the negative things happening, it can be great to take a break and hear some great things happening in the world. Make sure to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to stay up to date with the latest and best interviews of the top minds in the green industries. And if you are interested in launching your own podcast to make an even larger impact on the world, then look no farther than the podcasting platform that I use here to launch every single episode of Green Business Impact, Podbean. I searched through all the different podcasting platforms out there and the best choice by far was Podbean. They give you truly the best value and all the resources you need to spread your message to the world by easily connecting you to all the different podcasting networks like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of them. And they give you so many resources and opportunities to monetize it as well. So if you are on the fence about which podcasting platform to go with, make sure you check out the link in the description below to register your podcast with Podbean. Thanks again, and we can't wait to see you back here next time for another hit of Climate Positivity.